Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. In her closing argument, in almost all of her speeches, almost all of her columns, was that if the Equal Rights Amendment passed, men would be able to enter women's bathrooms. You know, I just based on my own personal preference, if somebody has name brand Charmin, that's that's the best thing I've seen all day. Because it's printed great. on there, right? Yeah. Instagram is a place to see all sorts of things posted by all manner of people around the world. Folks share visuals of niche interests that aren't necessarily strange or uncommon. In fact, some of the most interesting accounts focus on stuff many of us may not pay much mind because it's so everyday, like the places you go to answer nature's call. That's right, I'm talking about washrooms. And as it happens, there's an Instagram account called Bathrooms in St. Louis that features pictures of select restrooms in the STL area. Here to talk with us about that page and what it's about, we welcome Gabby McMahon, a resident of Richmond Heights and the person behind the Bathrooms in St. Louis lens. Gabby, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, Elaine. I'm happy to be here. So what possessed you to start an entire Instagram account dedicated to restrooms? The inspiration from it came from my own home. So my fiance and I bought a house in Richmond Heights um, a couple of years ago, and we renovated the whole thing, and it was such a fun time. Um, But I was struggling to come up with inspiration for our bathrooms that we were renovating, and so I just found myself taking photos in different bathrooms in St. Louis, like, oh, I love this sink or I love this wallpaper. And I found inspiration from that. And then I realized I have a bunch of pictures of different bathrooms in St. Louis <laughs> on my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe this would be a fun thing to to share to people. You know, I follow a lot of St. Louis foodie accounts and different things like that. I love what they post. And I was like, there's not a good place to see the different unique bathrooms in St. Louis. And so I decided to create it. What has been your criteria for posting? A couple of things that I look for when I decide to post. One is just the design. Obviously, if it's a really beautiful bathroom or really interesting. Um, Two would really be the accessibility, which has been such a fun thing that I've learned about since starting this page is just how important it is to let people know how accessible a bathroom is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, if it's really private or there's a lot of space, things like that, um, you know, if they happen to have a really great bathroom I wanted to show, then I would post it. Did anything about the way people responded to your posts surprise you? Absolutely. I never expected it to gain any traction at all um, and and was surprised when it did. And I had a lot of people message me, you know, where has this account been my whole life? This is so (laughs) great. And just from that perspective, but also from the lens of I've had moms message me and say, this is so great because I know if I can go change, you know, my baby's diaper or if I have my toddlers with me and there's room for them. And I didn't expect that much of a response or, you know, somebody who said, you know, my mom's in a wheel chair and this is great and so the accessibility perspective of it both for parents and those with disabilities that really surprised me Mm -hmm. just that response it's great that you were able to provide that kind of 
information for people, even yeah. without knowing that you were doing it necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you used to give ratings. Why did you stop doing that? I realized, you know, as it started to gain more traction, I didn't want to do anything negatively or provide any sort of negative feedback to businesses. I, I have no intention of tearing down a business or anything along those lines. And so really just wanted it to be more of an informative thing. However, I do still rate toilet paper because okay. <laughs> that's really an important part. And I, and I don't think it reflects negatively on a business, just giving them some feedback on their toilet paper. <laughs> and what qualities make for good TP? Honestly, to each their own. It's kind of like pillows, right? Everybody has a different <laughs> preference. Um, but, you know, I just based on my own personal preference, if somebody has name brand Charmin, that's that's the best thing I've seen all day. Because it's that's printed great. on there, right? Yeah. You can yeah. feel and see the difference. And and I said this, uh, you know, in talking earlier, but I think the quality of, of toilet paper in a bathroom, it speaks a lot to the quality of, you know, that business, right? Mm. If they care enough to do that. But, you know, jokingly, of course, but that is something that's been fun to, uh, to put a rating to that. <laughs> so we're going to do a little bit of a, a lightning round yeah. here. And it is, you know, which restroom so far is or has... So which restroom so far has been most distinctive? Most distinctive. So I'm going to say Songbird, um, which is uh, more of a breakfast coffee restaurant. They, it's just, you can tell exactly what bathroom that is from anywhere. If you see a photo of it anywhere, you know that's where it is. They've got cute little eggs all over the wall, and it's just gorgeous and really ties in with the theme. And that's the one with the Gudetama with the little lazy egg, is that the one? I believe one? so, yes, okay. that sounds right, yeah. <laughs> and then there's also one that you've posted about Brennan's bathroom. Yes, yes, okay. So um, I think this is one of the most creative bathrooms I've seen so far in St. Louis. The reason for this is you go into the bathroom and it's a bunch of celebrity yearbook photos, um, which of course is funny. It ties into pop culture, but the mirror has a little saying that's like, we don't care where you went to high school. And I immediately laughed at this because <laughs> one, yes, it's a funny pop culture thing, but it ties in well with St. Louis culture. You know, it's so commonly um, asked, you know, where'd you go to high school? Where are you from if you're a St. Louis native? And so they found a way to tie in St. Louis culture with celebrity culture. I, I just thought it was genius, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Props to whoever came up with that. I, I just loved that. Which is the most accessible bathroom? So, you know, I thought about this, and there wasn't a specific one that came to mind. I, I wanted to highlight some of the qualities that I thought would be, you know, best in an accessible bathroom. So one is um, a private bathroom instead of a room, you know, filled with stalls, of course, and then just space. And then also the location of the bathroom. I went yeah. to a lot of, you know, I've been to a lot where you have to go up and down stairs to find the restroom or um, things like that. And so, you know, obviously you can imagine if you have any sort of a disability, that can be such a challenge. And so, um, you know, just really putting that into thought when designing a bathroom or, or creating that space, just thinking about every walk of life that could come into your business. Mm -hmm. Best in show, just overall, which has been the most impressive washroom you've been to? Yeah, so this this may come as no surprise given where it's located, but I'm going to say Casa Don Alfonso in the Ritz-Carlton. Of course, um, a very luxurious restaurant, but the bathrooms 
smelled amazing. <laughs> they were fully stocked. I mean, things you don't even think you're going to need in the bathroom. Um, and it was just gorgeous. As you walk in and you immediately say, wow, this is a great bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and the restaurant experience was was just as wonderful. And it's got private stalls. Oh, yeah, big right? time, which I love because I, I hate when I feel like people can, can look in and see me. It makes me so uncomfortable. So <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Gabby McMahon is the St. Louis area resident behind the informative Instagram account, Bathrooms in St. Louis. Gabby, thank you for taking time to join us today. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. We need to take a quick bathroom break. When we return, we'll go further with this topic by discussing the history of public restrooms in the United States. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. We're talking today about a place we go to go. Yes, we're discussing restrooms. Before our potty break, we got some local perspective on notable bathrooms in the St. Louis area. We are now moving on to another perspective, and that's the history of public restrooms in America. To provide some insight into that, we welcome Bryant Simon, history professor at Temple University. Bryant is currently working on a book about the past of public restrooms in the U.S. and what it can tell us about public bathrooms today. Bryant, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you've been researching for this book for the last four to five years. Were public restrooms a quirky sort of interest for you before that, or did something very specific make you think the world really needs a deeper look at this? Yeah, this wasn't a quirky interest of mine. And if I had an interest in it, I didn't know. I, like most people, I wasn't cataloging it. But in 2018, at a Starbucks, not far from my house here in Philadelphia, two black men were waiting for a colleague at a Starbucks store downtown. And one of them asked to use a bathroom. And the employee there said, well, you can't use it unless you buy something. Mm-hmm. Words were passed. And the two black men were arrested and taken away. And the story was widely reported on, and it was widely reported on as a kind of incident of shopping while black. And and it, it was that, but I got to thinking about the bathroom part of the story. What did that tell us about that same history of inequality? And, and it was really a question that I had, and I started to do what historians do, and that was to dig into the past, to dig into records, and I I sort of came to one really important revelation really quickly, was that there was a moment in the past at the turn of between the 19th and 20th centuries where Americans were very aggressively building bathrooms, that this was almost a campaign along the lines of road building, a massive Mm -hmm. public works project, and that when they built them, they held ribbon-cutting ceremonies um, 
And they bragged about how much they spent on them. They bragged about their touch points. They bragged about marble finishes. And I began to wonder, how do we get what happened to them? And how do we get to this moment where Starbucks had become, in some ways, our default public bathroom? And mm. what, what was that story? Now, that gets at something that I'd love for you to clarify before we proceed. Bryant, how yeah. do you define a public bathroom? Yeah, this is a, a really interesting question, and I think it, it also gets at the interview you just did with Gabby. What ideally makes a public bathroom and what some of the early public bathroom builders had in mind that we can talk about it is they would be fully accessible to everyone, that nobody would be kept away from them. Of course, that wasn't true. Public bathrooms from the very beginning in a place like St. Louis and here in Philadelphia were segregated along racial lines. They had attendants who might keep some people out. And, and that's kind of the reveal, right, that the public bathrooms are essential for all of us to have access to the public, to be away from home. But they were never completely open to everyone, and they got more unequal over time. Mm-hmm. And how did that... Um inequality in access to restrooms influenced the way people, you know, no, no pun intended, the way that they moved. No, I, I think that's exactly right. And what I've discovered is that public bathrooms make map makers of all of us. Mm-hmm. And whether we think about it or not, we're constantly making maps about where we can go. And that map Again, I think Gabby's story tells this. That map is is fullest, perhaps, for white men or people who present as white men. Mm -hmm. And that map has less places on it for women, for instance. Um, There's a long history, right, of kind of inequality for women in access to public bathrooms, the lines that women had to wait on. That map is much less filled in for black people historically. Currently, right, that map is really hot for gender non-binary people. Mm-hmm. That map looks really different if you're unhoused. And so I think that's really the story of how the bathroom kind of really creates those maps. And you have mentioned many different aspects of how a person's identity, how they present, affects where and when they can go. And you've found a direct relationship between restrooms and social movements. Can you provide a couple of concrete examples of the history of how race and gender have affected access to what were supposed to be public washrooms, but in fact were not open to all the public? Yeah, I mean, the race question won't surprise anyone, right? I mean, there's a long history of segregation in America, and and much of that was formal segregation. So public bathrooms from the outset were built segregated, and they were built um, completely not separate but equal. Um, And one of the famous pictures of public bathrooms is of three doors, and it would say ladies, men, and colored. And so you, you get a sense, right, of that, that the public bathroom was a place that was unequal, but also meant to create stigma, also denied women the right to separate spaces. And same with women. Um, 
the first public bathrooms, many of them were actually urinals to serve men in mm-hmm. public. They weren't always built equally, and they were distinctly built unequally as time went by, and there was an attempt to kind of deny women the right to public space. And so that kind of building of inequality into public maps through bathrooms is an important story. But the corollary of that is also an interesting story. Almost every social movement of the 20th century has a bathroom story to it. Mm -hmm. So some of the first civil rights protests during the Freedom Ride, say, were attempts to integrate bathrooms. The first victim of the civil rights movement, Sammy Young Jr., was shot and killed while trying to integrate a bathroom in the South in 1966. And it's interesting, you know, when the Civil Rights Act passed, one of the things that people celebrated was the fact of equal access to bathrooms. And it's really clear in the record when people are talking about it. The women's movement, some of the first kind of struggles of the women's movement are to gain equal access to bathrooms. And there's a, a California congressperson who launches a campaign for what she calls potty parity by mm-hmm. taking a sledgehammer to a toilet in Sacramento in the late 1960s. But seeing, but understanding, right, that equality meant equal access to bathrooms away from home. The gay rights movement, even before Stonewall, um, gay men in particular are fighting against local police departments entrapment of of men in bathrooms, understanding that to not be stigmatized in, in the bathroom is a form of, of fighting for equality. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and clearly, right, the, the gender non-binary movement of today is fighting um, in some ways um, against the kind of assault of their right to choose a bathroom and and leading campaigns to, to build more equitable space in toilets. We're speaking with Bryant Simon, who is a history professor at Temple University. He's working on a book about the history of public restrooms in the U.S., and he's speaking with us about that history and also um, connecting it to some things that have to do with St. Louis specifically. And I understand that uh, that correlation between the first public restrooms in America and St. Louis is not, uh, it's not one we have to make up, that there actually is a, correct, a connection there. Can you talk about that? Yeah, St. Louis was one of the cities that early in the 20th century was actively involved in a campaign to build public bathrooms. And they saw this campaign as a way to advance St. Louis as a modern city, as the kind of city that would be among the great cities of America and of the world. And very proudly built its public bathrooms and had these ceremonies where they would celebrate them. And for me, one of the the kind of clearest expressions of this campaign to build public bathrooms is in the train station in St. Louis. On one of the mezzanines, there's a men's room that you can walk into, and above the mezzanine is a gilded um, kind of overhang. And it's kind of amazing to me, right? This is saying to people that they matter, that their access to public space should be adorned and and should be embellished. 
And I, I think it's a really great expression of this kind of early bathroom building campaign. And that bathroom is still open, but you can also see throughout Forest Park, right, is dotted with public bathrooms that are now closed, um, mm. little comfort stations that were built to make the park accessible to everyone, mm-hmm. which are no longer maintained. And I think that's an important part of our story, right, that we have lost the commitment not just to building gilded public spaces, as those early St. Louis bathroom builders committed to, but to even functional public spaces like the bathrooms built throughout Forest Park. Now, this campaign to build public bathrooms that you mentioned, do you think this will ever come back, especially as it seems that there's a need for truly public restrooms um, in so many parts of our country, and particularly in cities where there are so many people who are homeless? Yeah, I, I think this is a really important question and a fascinating question. And I think it gets at a couple things. One is our willingness to, and I think Gabby's sort of portrait showed this, many people still have a kind of map of bathrooms that they can go to. There are restrooms and restaurants and Starbucks that they can go to. And sometimes we confuse these private spaces with public spaces. Mm-hmm. And that gets in the way, I think, of our understanding of what other people don't have. And as you mentioned, people who are unhoused face a very different landscape. And I think that they're going to test our commitment to building truly public spaces and to making public space accessible to everyone. But one of the things that's happening now, particularly in California, we're seeing is that the absolute dearth of public bathrooms has become a problem. Mm -hmm. The lack of public facilities has led to hepatitis B and deadly outbreaks in in San Diego. Stores um, in areas where the unhoused live find that every day they rise to open up their doors and there is excrement and urine in the the storefront. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're reaching the crisis of kind of the developing world here for some people where the lack of access to clean, safe, and available places to, for bodily functions is now becoming a public risk to public health risk to everyone. Right. And, you know, I hate that we have to get to this point, but in some places we are getting to this point and there is, there has been an increasing response to deal with that. Um, through porta potties, something called Portland Lose, various kinds of more affordable forms of, you know, places for people to go that aren't privatized. And mm-hmm. so, I, I do think we've reached a crisis point where we're we're going to have a, a bathroom building campaign, but it's not going to be on the scale and elaborate as the one in the St. Louis public train station. I I don't think we're going to celebrate people by offering them access to public bathrooms. I think it'll be a kind of management of the other. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm wondering, I know that you are focusing on the history of bathrooms in the United States, but is there anything that we can learn from how public bathrooms are done in other countries that would help sort of address some of the, the very present issues that we have right now? 
Yeah, I mean, we can always learn from other places, and, and the crisis of public bathrooms is, is global in nature, and there are all kinds of ways that places have tackled it. Um, London has built more public bathrooms in recent years. Other people are interested, right, in what a small fee for what used to be called a pay toilet, reinstituting pay toilets as a way to kind of pay for these public amenities Mm -hmm. and also pay for attendance. I think most of us know that having an attendant helps to create better behavior. And so people are playing with that model of, of having some pay to pay for an attendant to create safer spaces. You know, in a place like Iceland, which has the um, highest number of public toilets per person, they have defined public toilets as a public necessity, mm. as something that people, as people, we are entitled to. And I think ultimately, if we begin to focus that on that and say, this isn't something that should be a luxury, this isn't something that should be left up to chance, this isn't something that just some people should have more access to, but a public need that defines um, a modern and caring society, then I think we get closer to a more sustainable public realm and a model that works for everybody. Mm-hmm. To bring it back to St. Louis, there is a connection also, uh, you know, you've talked about moral hazard. There's the hygiene bit, and it's tied directly to something else that St. Louis is known for, and that's beer. (laughs) Talk about that a little bit. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. So our first public bathrooms are trying to solve a problem. They're trying to solve a problem making sure women who are kind of in public, not for the first time, but in larger numbers in the late 19th and early 20th century, they're trying to solve a sanitary problem. There's a new awareness of sanitation. But they're also trying to solve uh, a problem about the tavern because virtually the only public bathroom that exists in the late 19th and early 20th century is the tavern or bar. And there's a fear that men will go use the bathroom and then spend their family wages. And so bathroom builders in St. Louis and elsewhere, in Chicago in particular, are like, well, if we're going to sort of protect the family, we need to open public bathrooms to keep men out of the saloon. The funny part of it is they make the same argument when prohibition comes into play. Mm -hmm. They say to themselves, (laughs) again, in St. Louis and in other places, they're like, oh, well, we don't have any taverns anymore, and that's where people, you know, where men at least, were using as the public bathroom. Now we have to build public bathrooms. So the story of beer and Anheuser-Busch, but of, like, the, the saloon is really kind of embedded, in, again, in that early public bathroom campaign where they're trying to use the public bathroom to solve problems, but problems of increasing access. Currently, beginning in the 1940s and 1950s, the public bathroom is used to solve problems, but it's often by limiting access. You know, we want to solve the, we're, we're disturbed by a queer presence in public, so we're going to close public bathrooms. We are disturbed by the inability to maintain segregation, so we're going to close public bathrooms. We're concerned about people using public bathrooms to wash, so we're going to close the public bathrooms. There was a kind of flip there that happens in the, after sort of World War II. 
There's another St. Louis connection to bathroom debates in our nation's history. Conservative activist Phyllis Schlafly. Tell us about the tie between Schlafly, the women's rights movement, and the potty parody movement you were talking about, Bryant. Sure. Phyllis Schlafly, a resident of kind of the greater St. Louis area, was a leading voice in opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1960s. And she went all across the country giving speeches, talking about the threat that the amendment posed to women. And her closing argument in almost all of her speeches, almost all of her columns was that if the Equal Rights Amendment passed, men would be able to enter women's bathrooms. And this was kind of a moral panic that she stirred up that eventually grew to the point that the Equal Rights Amendment was not adopted by the United States Congress. I have had this particular question for some time. We've been using the words bathroom, washroom, restroom. When you were describing that spectacular um, facility at the St. Louis train station, it brought this up again. Where did the term restroom come from? We constantly use terms that deny what happens in these places. Mm. And (laughs) there is, and and this is why the public bathroom, the public restroom, the public lavatory, the first ones were called comfort stations, has always been a troubled place because they're at the intersection of the public and the private. Mm -hmm. We imagine bodily elimination, particularly in the late 19th and early 20th century with the advent of the flush toilet as something that happens behind a closed door, mm-hmm. something that's full of shame, something that we want to deny. And then to move it to the public makes it this incredibly troublesome place, right? That part of the management of that is to never acknowledge what people need that space for. And mm-hmm. so, the words themselves are words that are used to try and hide what we actually know is going on there. And so the really important places of cognitive dissidence mm-hmm. that make them such contentious places. I mean, I think this is an important thing to recognize is that, that, that the balance between the need for public privacy mm-hmm. can never be resolved. And it's why... We use language that doesn't acknowledge them, but also why they're such fraught places in our history and why tensions explode there again and again and again. What do you hope your book about the history of public restrooms um, will do for the future of of the, the places where we take care of business? Well, the first thing as a historian I want is for my book to openly acknowledge how we have produced and reproduced again and again inequality in American life. And and that is at the bathroom door. And we often think about, you know, segregation being challenged at the schoolhouse door, but the place that it's manufactured and other inequalities more consistently and assiduously is the bathroom door. So open, you know, a kind of acknowledgement of that past, which we, haven't sort of fully accounted for before, but that also means that if we want to build a truly inclusive present, 
we can't do that without acknowledging people's need for access for places to go away from home and for that access to be equal and for people's bodies to be acknowledged and not demeaned in those spaces. Bryant Simon is a professor of history at Temple University. He's currently working on a book that goes through the history of public restrooms in the United States. Bryant, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Elaine. This episode was produced by Emily Woodburn. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.